Welcome to Round Rock Church of Christ. We're glad you're listening. If you're in the Austin area, we'd love to have you join us this Sunday at 8.30 or 10 a.m. Or you can check us out and watch online at roundrockchurch.us. May God bless you as you seek Him, and may He use this message to give you exactly what you need. Amen. Let me pray for us before we sit down. Uh, so Lord, as we open your word, uh, may you open our hearts by the power of your Holy Spirit. May you help us be able to sense the nudges, your presence, and every good thing that we need to hear for abundant life for us right now and life to come. In Jesus' name, we all pray together. Amen. As we come to church today, one of the things that I wonder is do we have any master avoiders in the room? Avoiding, I am convinced, is an art form. There was an online forum a couple years ago where uh, there's a group that asked for stories of what great lengths have you gone to to avoid running into people or conversations. And this online forum was awesome. Gave you all sorts of different ideas. So if you are a voider, here are some ideas for you today. People actually wrote these anonymously to just say, here's what I've done to dodge people. We trained our kids to treat a knock at the door as the same as handling a tornado warning. Hide and take cover. Uh-huh. Some of you do this and you won't admit it. One time a local barista remembered my name and order. I haven't been back since. If someone is in front of a shelf I need at the grocery store, I will pretend to look for other items on another shelf until they leave. That is, yeah, that is my H-E-B every week. I had two meetings scheduled at the same time. Called both to say I had to go to the other, then I didn't go to either. That happened in the Zoom world a lot. Uh, Let's see, I think the next one is the top one. This was the most highly voted that people were like, yes, 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 here it is. Uh, Oh, no, it's the next one. All right, so I create a list of people who I've learned their routines, commutes, commitments, favorite restaurants just to avoid them. I call it my anti-stalking list. And then this next one, this is the one that everyone was like, this is it right here. Once I didn't go to the restroom for 12 straight hours because I didn't want to disturb the man that was next to me, but I also kept accepting the drinks offered to me because I didn't want to appear rude. My bladder has never been the same since that flight. (laughs) Being able to avoid can be an art form. And maybe for some of us, we could come today and we could confess some ways that we consciously avoid people or conversations or certain situations. But I wonder if fewer of us can confess what we unconsciously avoid or tend to deny. There, uh, in the sciences, there has been a reference to how our brains actually neurologically like to deny or move away from reality anytime our brain has to do really hard work. There was a writer by the name of Michael Spector who he wrote this book called Denialism, How Irrational Thinking Hinders Scientific Progress and Ruins Our Lives. And in this book, he basically scientifically lays out that the neurons in your brain will gravitate towards what is the easiest thing for me to do, even if that means I need to deny or 
avoid. You know, in uh, medical professionals, they uh, talk about one of the ways they see this happen is uh, a concept called uh, mutual pretense. Uh, maybe you've experienced this in the room where you, uh, you're sitting and someone receives a very heavy diagnosis, like a life-changing diagnosis. And something really weird just kind of happens in the room. The diagnosis is said, and then immediately afterwards, people just start talking about basketball. Immediately, they just start talking about how terrible hospital food is. It's almost as if no one even heard in the room what was just said in that moment. Our brains like to move away sometimes from reality. Maybe historically, one of the most just bone-chilling moments for us globally was right after the end of World War II. That when Nazi soldiers were, that were captured were told about all the events of the Holocaust, there were people who denied that the Holocaust even happened. Even today, in 20 countries, like to, Holocaust denialism is illegal because it's so detrimental to thinking that something didn't happen. There were even groups, ally groups, that would literally bring soldiers into movie theaters. And we even have pictures of what, well, we don't have that picture, apparently. But there were pictures of soldiers who were in camps that actually watched these clips of what happened in the Holocaust. And you can see there's no emotion on their faces. People even said soldiers would walk out from those movie theaters and they would say, so where are we going to dinner? Sometimes our brains want to unconsciously tell ourselves that we're right about something, even if we're wrong. Why do our minds want to do this? Because sometimes it is better to settle for an illusion of being right than the discomfort of possibly being wrong. What's powerful about life with God is that even though the world will encourage you to be determined to always be in the right, life with God gives you the invitation to claim when you are wrong. There is something freeing about being wrong. In the words of Jesus, the truth sets us free. And this is why last week we started a series called Turn. We are collectively joining other Christians in the practice of slowly turning towards the good news of Easter, that God came in Jesus Christ. He lived fully. He died. He was buried, and He was resurrected. And in order to experience all God has for us in that good news, we need a season of recognizing the bad news. We need a season of recognizing the ways that we have turned away from God in order to see what we are turning towards in Jesus Christ. And Christians have done this through the practice of repentance. When Jesus shows up in the Gospels, one of the first words out of his mouth is repent, for the kingdom of God is near. When we repent, when we turn our lives to Jesus, the first time is one of many times in which we are slowly turning ourselves over to God over and over and over again. 
And we've talked about how do we just live a season of repentance. We've said, you know, it's, it's going to be three things for us here at Round Rock for the next couple of weeks leading up to Easter. First, there is a daily way to engage in repentance. We have a handout. There's still some that are left from last week that you can actually practice and go through prompts of what's it look like for me to process repentance with God personally. Next weekly, we opened up Wednesday nights and we started doing this last week. And it was a great time that we've just opened up Wednesday nights here at the building in room 201 for people to receive prayer, just to pray over. Here's what I'm processing in life. Here's what I need prayer for. Or here's what I need to confess and ask for repentance. And I need someone else's voice to lift up my prayers to God. And then lastly, we're going to walk through the book of Jonah for this month. And like I've highlighted before, the story of Jonah is a story of someone who wrestles personally with repentance with God and repentance with others, with God. These are the ways that we're going to practice this this month. Now, you may say to yourself, uh, why we got to do repentance for a whole month? You know, my father-in-law used to tell me, you know, as a, as a brand new preacher, he'd be like, look, 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 look. I come to church to hear positive things, okay? I want to walk away and be like, yes, like, good day. If the preacher walks up every single week and says, let's talk about repentance, that feels like a downer, right? I think one way to think about it is that uh, Dallas Willard, he was a very, very insightful Christian thinker, said, a drop of water every five minutes will not ultimately get you a shower. There are times where we have to spend a season in life to truly feel the full weight of turning away from God in order to know what we're turning towards. This is what happens in the first chapter of Jonah. If you have a Bible with you this morning, I'd encourage you to actually grab it. You can go to Jonah. Jonah's about midway in your Bible. He is in and amongst the minor prophets. It's a very short book. Jonah, as a prophet, is a messenger of God. And in last week, we talked about how Jonah, the beginning of the book, literally starts with, he has turned down God's calling for him. Jonah basically does the opposite of what God asked him to do. God comes to Jonah and he says, I want you to go to a great city. And Jonah says, I'm going to go to a city that no one has heard of. Jonah, God says, Jonah, I want you to travel by land to Nineveh. And Jonah says, I'm going to get on a boat and I'm going to get far away from Nineveh. The Lord says, I want you to arise, Jonah. And Jonah actually says, actually, you know what? I'm going to go down to Joppa. And in Jonah 1.5, the writer of this message, he is trying to give you every literary way to say what is happening to Jonah spiritually is also happening to Jonah physically. The writer is trying to get the word down in as many times. Jonah goes down to Joppa. He goes down to the port. Look with me in verse 5. He says, all the sailors were, ooh, yeah, all the sailors were afraid and cried out to their own gods, and they threw cargo uh, into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah, he had gone below deck where he would lay down and he would go into a deep sleep. It is like the writer's trying to say to you over and over again. 
Jonah has turned down God. And Jonah's life is slowly spiraling down. When you tell God no, when you tell Him no, all parts of life get affected. Not just one part. When we tell God no, spiritually, when God gives us an invitation for no, sometimes it starts to manifest itself externally in our lives as well. And here's what happens to Jonah. Jonah turns down God, and then we see Jonah turning inwardly on himself. Jonah turns inward. It's as if Jonah takes all of his focus and moves it inward. There was a very influential Christian by the name of Augustine who once described sin just simply as sin is curving inward on yourself. I don't know about you, but I have found this to be true. The more I get in my head and I curve my thoughts inward, the more I perpetuate a life and cycle that is opposite of life with God. When I fixate on what is or is not inside my house, I perpetuate the cycle. When I fixate on what is or is not in my bank account, I perpetuate the cycle. When I fixate on what is in people's heads about me, I perpetuate the cycle. All of us has, have forms of turning inwardly on the things of life. And one of the things that's just obvious in the text with Jonah is when Jonah turns inwardly, when he gets to the bottom of the boat and he pads himself, he's sleeping, he's not aware of anything else that's happening around him, it affects those who are outside of his life. Look at me in the text just with the verbs. All of the verbs in the past, Jonah's passive. All the rest of the verbs, everyone else, they're overcompensating. They are trying to work this out. God is in movement. The sailors are in movement. Jonah has no movement. I guess what I'm trying to say is when you fixate on the inward things of life, it makes other people in your life have to overcompensate. In Jonah 1 verse 7, 8, when they finally, like, they're like, what is happening? Something is happening. Someone has done something. Then the sailors said to each other, come, let's cast lots to find who's responsible for this calamity. And they cast lots, and it fell on Jonah. Now, I want to point to you this word right here, calamity. Now, in some of your translations, they may actually use the word calamity. In other translations, you may actually find the word evil that's used here. Translators have kind of reached for different words because this word right here is actually an umbrella term when it comes to evil. Other places in the Old Testament, when this word is used, evil sometimes expresses people's attitudes and thoughts and actions that can hurt another person. Sometimes evil is used and evil can express how other people make others' lives unpleasant. Sometimes this word evil can mean fierce or it can be wildness. Sometimes evil can mean it is expressed in creating poorer or inferior quality of life for people. We love 
to talk about evil out there. We love to look at social media and be like, there is evil out there. A season that prepares for Easter does not get caught up in there's evil out there. Preparing for Easter says there's evil that also gets caused here. That confesses that sometimes our attitudes and our thoughts and our actions, they hurt other people. Sometimes we make other people's lives unpleasant. Sometimes we ignore that there are people who are going through lesser or poorer qualities of life. Jonah is not praying with the sailors. Jonah is not up present on the deck with the sailors, and he sure isn't in solidarity with those sailors. Can I just say that may be what life with God looks like? That it is praying with those who are in trouble. That it is standing with those who are in trouble. That is being present in and amongst those who are facing trouble. Jonah's nowhere to be found on the top of that ship. But you find that God is working in the midst of it. Here's what Jonah 1.4 literally says. The Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. God, in the midst of evil, does not just sit on God's hands. When Jonah sins, God sins winds. He wakes people up. Maybe one way to think of how God works is uh, think about one of uh, one of kind of my bedtime routines I experience at night. Um, I am a uh, I I'm a morning person. Okay, I'm barely alive at night. My spouse. She is a night person, okay? She comes alive at night. And we have this routine every single night where I hop in bed after a shower, long day, head on the pillow, feeling pretty good, about to drift. Is that you, Lord? (laughs) Yes, care. Um... Do you think Catherine and Kevin are doing okay in their marriage? Uh, I, I don't know. I don't know. I'm not focused on that right now. Saying, yes, yes, care. Do you think we're putting back enough in retirement? What? I, like, like, is our routine every night, right before I go to bed, she wants to bring up these really serious subjects that involve other people. And that's good because I need to be reminded of that. But she wakes me up. God is the one who whispers and slowly wakes us up. One of the ways that God comes to us is God wakes ourselves up to the concerns of other people. If you were to walk through the Old Testament all the way up to this verse, you would notice that in the original language, what God sends wind This word gets used all over the place. 
You can find it in places like Genesis. Now the earth was formless. It was empty. And the Spirit of God, which this would be the wind of God, the breath of God, was hovering over the waters. In places like Ezekiel, this is what the Sovereign Lord said to these bones. I will make breath, same word, wind, enter you, and they will come to life. Other places in Isaiah, he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath, same word, wind of his lips, he will slay the wicked. God sends wind in this passage. What is true back then is true today, that God still sends wind. The wind is God's Holy Spirit. And sometimes we like to hear that God is comforter, and that is absolutely true. But there are times where God's wind is convicting. God's wind enters our life and convicts us, shows us what we subconsciously or unconsciously deny about our lives. And when the Spirit of God comes, the Spirit takes what's chaotic, what's dead, what is wicked or needs injustice, and God's kindness says, I need you to look at this. I need you to turn your life in such a way that you're partnering with me in this. In Romans 2, it literally says, is God's kindness that brings us to repentance. God convicts us. God convicts you because God is kind. And God doesn't want you to miss out on what God has designed for the world. When the wind wakes us up, it literally asks us the same questions that the sailors come to Jonah. They literally ask him like, hey, you know, who's responsible for all this? What kind of work do you do again? Where do you come from? What's your country? From what people are you? These are the questions of repentance. When the wind blows through our lives, the beginning of repentance is just saying, hey, like, this isn't who I am. This isn't who God has designed me to be. I've missed this in my life. And it's real, it's kind of convicting how Jonah approaches it. Like when Jonah responds to these questions, you gotta you got listen to the text really closely. He says, Hey, I'm a Hebrew and I worship the Lord. Okay, that did not answer all the questions that were just asked. And then they were terrified to him. And they said, You know, what have you done? He says, You know, I. I worship the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. And this is me. I want you to see that one, Jonah does not answer all the questions that they ask. His repentance does not start off beautifully. And then second, and this is a word for some of us that have been in church for a while, Jonah can say some really great language about God. But just because you can say great things about God does not always mean you are following God. Sometimes you can sit in a Bible classroom and you can have all the answers you want, but the question that God is asking you is are you living a life that is turning away from sin in ways that are opposite from God's life? And are you turning to God? Are you answering the question, what have you done? Or maybe a better question for some of us is what have you not done in your life? Confession is acknowledgement. Repentance is action. So the other week we're in bed. Usual routine, right? Here it goes, ooh, 
Hey, Zane, I forgot to tell you one quick thing. I said, okay, Kara, tell me. She goes, minor detail, minor detail. Uh, our HOA is pretty upset with us, and uh, they're going to fine us at the end of the week. I was like, what? I was like, I'm up now. What are you talking about? She goes, okay, all right, I knew you were going to react like this. So she's like, just hear me out, just hear me out, okay. Um, uh, um, uh, we have some weeds in our yard, and uh, some people are upset, and they, uh, they've complained. Um, and they're going to fine us uh, for those weeds if we don't pick them. Um, and I said, not our house. Mm-mm, not our house. We do not have weeds in our house. And she goes, I, I think they thought you would say that. Um, so they sent me pictures as well of the weeds. And I'm livid. I'm like, no one tells me about, about my house that way. So what do I do? I'm angry and I'm prideful. I wake up early the next morning. Let's crack a dawn. No one sees me. I'm out there. And I look, and there's just one small weed out in that front yard. I remember I get down on my knees. I'm like, this is ridiculous. This is ridiculous. I, I pull the weed out, and I'm like, take that HOA. I'm literally paying you for you to complain about me. And I pick the weed, and I look up, and there's another weed right next to the fence. Move over there, and I pick that weed up, and I take it out. I'm like, now we're done. Turn around. Another weed right next to that fire hydrant. Spent about an hour picking weeds. And uh, I'm not happy about it. I'll tell you what I honestly thought. When I started picking the weeds, and I kept picking more weeds, I, I legitimately thought this to myself. I was like, oh gosh, I wonder if anyone from church has seen this. I'm embarrassment. Like, if, I can't, if I can't manage my own yard, like how, how should I be doing like what I'm doing right now? You know? And then I started looking at other people's yards. Oh, you know what? Like, they got little weeds there. They got little weeds there. And then it like, really dawned on me. I was like, oh, gosh. Oh, man. I hope Jerry Ray hasn't seen this. You know, like, like the man who has had like yard of the year since like the world was born. Like, what if he saw this? What would he think? And by the time I got done picking weeds, I had slowly moved myself. From what's to say about me? Just slowly moving myself and being like, all right. I was a poor neighbor. This was an eyesore. And I just couldn't see it. And it started with me getting on my knees and finding the weeds. Brothers and sisters, no one, no one likes to hear that they have weeds. No one likes that. Part of life with God is getting on your knees in prayer and asking, Lord, where are the weeds in my life? Maturity of love. This is a hard one for us. Maturity of love is not an attitude that just walks around and goes, I'm not hurting anyone. But the love of Christ moves us to, I'm not hurting anyone, to saying, but am I helping anyone who's hurting right now? The prophets, they would echo over and over again. Learn to do what's right. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Be aware of the fatherless. Be there for the widow. These are the words that Jonah and others would be speaking over and over again. And sometimes I think we need the wind of God to just ask us, are we turned in that direction? Are we inward focused right now?
And do we need the Lord to move us outward focus? If you want to ask yourself how to start moving in repentance, you just ask, who am I overlooking in my life? Who in this world am I overlooking? Brothers and sisters, we're, we're in a world of so many people are trying to throw things overboard. They're trying to use wisdom. They're trying to overcompensate. There are people who are hurting. There are oppressive systems for those who do not have resources. There are those who do not have homes or do not have parents. There are people of color who are still experiencing the wake of racism in the world. There are people who need other people who know God to walk next to them because right now they're handing their lives over in ways that they don't even know are costing them. And part of our question we need to ask ourselves is does the wind of God need to blow through me? Do I need to be convicted of something? Is there someone I'm overlooking right now in my life? And do I need to repent of that and start fresh? Uh, I want to invite, if you're an elder minister or a spouse of one of them, if you want to go ahead and move to the tables, uh, we're going to have people serve communion today. And here's the final thought I want to lead as we kind of do extended time of communion. In the language of Jonah, we are all in the same boat. We're all in the same boat. We are all helpless, and we need help from God. We need help, so we come to the table of God where we remember the one who said, I am the greater Jonah. I want you to think about Jonah's life and the life of Jesus. Jonah sleeps on a boat. Jesus sleeps on a boat. Sailors cry out to Jonah. The disciples cry out to Jesus. A question is asked of Jonah. A question is asked of Jesus. The Sea of Jonah is rough. The Sea of Galilee is rough. But the difference in Jonah and Jesus is that when Jonah throws himself overboard, God saves a few people. But when Jesus Christ hands himself over to the jaws of death, God saved the world. Absolutely. We can praise God for that. We owe Jesus Christ everything. And He wants everything from us. Will we repent and give Him that? Come and take the communion today as a way of claiming to Jesus, I am helpless, I need help, and I need to help other people. So Lord, we come before You. And we just recognize that claim. We are, we, we are, Lord, we cannot figure out this on our own. Spirit of God, we need you to blow through our lives and convict us. Lord, some of it, our heart just does not ache for those who your heart aches for. And we just pray, can you help us to have that aching, that longing? For the people you have the concern about. Because Lord, we know it was your body, it was your blood that showed us what you ache for. That you ache for all of creation. That you gave your life so that we can have life and we can help point others to you 
who gives life. So Jesus, thank you for your body and thank you for your blood. May you help us so we can help others. Pray this in your name. Amen.